academyblasting.tv. Welcome to academyblasting.tv, the explosives engineering podcast. Today we're excited to have Dr. Joshua Hoffman with us. He's the Director of Technical Services for IME, and we're going to be talking about a wide range of different topics, including uh, the Institute of Makers of Explosives, we'll be talking about detonators, and we'll be talking about storage of ammonium nitrate, along with several other topics that uh, Dr. Hoffman's been working on through his career, and uh, specifically with the Institute of Makers of Explosives. Now, uh, Dr. Joshua Hoffman is the Director of Technical Services with the Institute of Makers of Explosives, and in this role, he serves as the lead on any technical or security matters before the Institute. He has over 18 years of experience with the application of explosives combined uh, with advanced degrees in mining engineering. Dr. Hoffman served as the resident subject matter expert on explosives, and his main function is to serve both the commercial and explosives industry and IME's government partners by lending his technical expertise as well as being a conduit between the two. Josh Hoffman obtained his bachelor's in science in mining engineering with minors in explosives and chemistry from the Missouri University of Science and Technology, which was formerly known as the University of Missouri, Rolla. He then obtained his PhD in mining engineering from the University of Kentucky, and he was the inaugural SME AAAS Congressional Fellow and served on the U.S. House Committee on Natural Resources, Subcommittee on Energy and Mineral Resources. The committee retained him as a senior professional staff, and he continued to work with the mining and mineral-related policy. Josh is a licensed professional engineer in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, whose technical areas of expertise are blasting and explosives engineering. He also holds a Kentucky State Blasters license. Some of his past research and publication experience include the commercial application of explosives, blast mitigation from malicious explosive events, warhead design, shockwave dynamics, detonics, and public relations. So welcome, Josh. It's a pleasure to uh, have you on here. And I know we got a lot of interesting topics uh, to talk about today. Yeah, happy to be here. Excited to be part of this this podcast in general. I'm glad that you're one of the people that's sort of leading the explosives industry and, and interfacing with all the different types of policy over there on Capitol Hill. Um, and I know that's the IME's mission and, and the Institute of Makers of Explosive in general, something I wanted to talk to you about today. Yeah. Um, can you give us a little bit of background? I know probably many of the listeners have heard of IME, but they may not be intimately familiar with what you guys are doing and, and how you guys are sort of serving the explosives industry. Sure. I'm always happy to talk about that. And, and not just because it's my job, but also because of its fundamental importance. So the mission of IME is is a simple one. It's to promote the safety and security for the commercial explosives industry. Simple, but there's a lot to unpack there. So when we talk about safety and security, that's from cradle to grave. So everywhere from the precursors that go into the explosives during manufacturing all the way to their end use and, um, responsible destruction if they're not used as as they were created for. As far as the, the promoting aspect of that, that's at all levels as well. Everyone from the general public to our policymakers. And our policymakers 
again, at the federal, state, and local levels in all three branches of government. So the safety and security, that really goes back to kind of our inception, or more so on the safety side. We started back in 1913 at the request of the government to, to kind of put together on behalf of the industry the, the best practices so that we can create a more uh, safe industry, so that we can get that knowledge out, so that laws can be responsibly promulgated knowing what the industry already knows. Security got added into the mission kind of as our world evolved, as bad actors came along, as malicious events took place. So that's where we kind of incorporated security into our mission as well. So that's kind of kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah, and that's uh, – I, I know you guys are working a lot out there on uh... – on a lot of different sort of projects. And, and that's sort of some of the things that we'll get into on a couple of these uh, different topics we're, we're going to talk about today. But uh, you guys do a lot of um, or, or work with industry partners that do a lot of actual base research out there. And uh, are, are you guys doing anything interesting that you can talk about uh, today here in terms of some of the research projects currently underway? Sure. So we're always looking at ways science can better inform policy. So that's the reason IME engages with any research, be it fundamental or applied. When we go and advocate for a change in practice or change in regulation, we've got science to back it up. Testing has been done. Um, we represent the state of the art when we're promoting any changes. So that's why... IME has a fundamental interest in research or doing any testing. We're kind of unique as an organization in our engagement in the, the science and technology science side of engaged in the science and technology side of policymaking. Um, not many shops here in town actually do that. And that's kind of why I have a job in the first place. So as far as any upcoming, upcoming projects, uh, I think one I'm very excited about is we're putting together a CRADA right now with Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And a CRADA is a cooperative research and agreement, our cooperative research and development agreement. So this is a mechanism that a national lab can put in place to work with private industry. If there's areas of overlapping questions, they can put money, we can bring money, we can bring resources. A lot of our resources are in kind, so we're bringing our subject matter experts or our access to products that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. And they bring their government physicists and their supercomputers, and this nexus kind of allows us to do research that one or the other could not do if that relationship weren't symbiotic. So that's one I'm I'm really excited about, and I've been working on that for getting that process in place for the past couple of years. Another big stint is we're always looking at new and novel uh, tests to better inform our software, IME Safer. So when we 
utilize this this program, we know that there's been lots of testing in the field to validate or underpin the algorithms. So this is where we go out there and set off large scale um, tests on the surface and then go out there and pick up debris all over the place. And then another thing I'm always on the outlook for is finding out what researchers at the academic level around the country are doing. Because you never know what capability or, or what niche expertise you need for tomorrow's questions. So I'm always out there forming those relationships with the researchers, not only at Rolla, but Colorado School of Mines, Rhode Island, you name it. You know, all, all the mining schools, of course, with explosives research. And then there's other um, programs around the country that I interact with and just keep an ongoing rapport with those researchers. Yeah, that's great. And I know uh, that's one of the things that I like about IME is you guys bring a lot of that science and background and real understanding to that policy level and interact uh, with those policymakers to actually ensure that what they're putting out there not only meets our understanding of the science of explosives and the engineering of explosives, uh, but also ensures that the marketplace and, and commercial entities, entities can actually go about doing their day-to-day uh, -day activities. I know uh, I've read about a lot of the old uh, works that IME did to sort of safeguard that marketplace and ensure that it wasn't damaged with policies that were overbearing or extremely restrictive or would have stopped a lot of things from occurring. And, uh, you know, while still ensuring the safety of uh, using the products and the security of the nation. So definitely a, a big hats off to you guys. I know it's not an easy job by any means, I'm sure, uh, but it's something that's needed dramatically in the industry. And uh, I know you guys put together an SLP library, and that's something I think it's a phenomenal resource. I know you guys are also working on some online education uh, would you be able to talk about some of those SLPs and, and what the goal is for that and how IME goes about developing those and releasing those? Sure. So we've, in our library, our safety library of publications, we've about a couple dozen SLPs currently up to date and publishable. And all of these SLPs are free for download on our, on our website. You can go and buy them if you want, but that whatever cost you're paying just pretty much covers our publishing cost. And we make them freely available for download because that's one of our main tools for disseminating knowledge. And one of our pillars of how we accomplish our mission is to be a conduit through which knowledge can be continued from one generation to another. And part of that continuity involves putting it down on paper and publishing it. Hence our SLPs being published. These are living documents. So our all of our experts through our companies come together and look at each SLP on about a three-year basis. And they go through the document to see if there's been any change in the state of the art or best practices that warrant a change to that SLP. So we do our best to keep those as current as possible. And we're on SLP 30 right now, developing that one. 
But like I said, there's only a couple dozen out there. It's because as a technology or practice becomes obsolete, we'll retire that SLP and we won't recycle the number. We'll hang the jersey up and, and move along. Of keynote out of the SLPs, talking about a couple, um, SLP2, I always like to lean on that one because SLP2 is how we decide how and where, how much explosives we can store at any given site. And that's the rule book by which we've played for a hundred years since we developed it. And that's a rule book that was picked up by the federal government and turned into ATF's table of distances. So while it's useful for um, making sure that knowledge is freely accessible from the old guard to the new, it's also an excellent tool which we use to advocate when we go to regulators, when we go to policymakers. We've developed the code for them pretty much, and they don't always take it, nor should they. They are sovereign. But often they'll look at the work that's been put into it and recognize his, its validity and incorporate it directly into their regulation through reference. Another incorporation of our SLP is SLP 22. If you're familiar with IME's, IME's 22 box, when we're transporting explosives around on vehicles, that's the box you use if you've got initiators on the same truck as other explosives. And that's a regulation that DOT has promulgated and has incorporated IME's work into their um, regulatory entity. So that's a couple of the uh, reasons we have SLPs and their tremendous value. Yeah, and I think something that's that's really important about the SLPs is uh, that the fact that they are free and it, it allows people to get that information. You know, I was just talking with uh, actually a student about two weeks ago. Um, I was doing a guest lecture and and afterwards, one of the students asked me uh, about the proglomeration of information, specifically in the blasting industry. And I've, I've been fortunate as I've been going through this uh, industry in my career, I've been able to go back and sort of dig into some of these old records that uh, people were writing even in the 1600s and 1700s on uh, drill and blast and explosives engineering. And it, it's sort of it really impressed me and it made a big impression when I first started going into some of this stuff. Uh, many of like, for example, the stemming plugs we use today were actually drawn up and being used and implemented back as wooden stemming plugs in the late 1700s. And they're almost identical to what we have today, but that information was sort of uh, lost at a time, I guess. And, and it took centuries or decades to bring that back to the forefront. And um, I think that's something that you know, what, what I was asked was, how do we make sure stuff like that doesn't happen again? And the best answer I could give on the spot, and I don't know if you have a better answer, but it was, you know, having groups that are actually adamant about explosives engineering or mining engineering or whatever your areas you're looking at that compiles this information, puts it together, and then gives it out for free to people in the industry so that way we can transmit it all over. Um, and, and I sort of see that with the SLPs a little bit. And I don't know if you got a better answer for how we ensure that those uh, that, that we can keep that information going there. Yeah, I think 
my answer kind of drives at one of the points you made, these these entities, these bodies, these societies, these associations, because you can write everything down, all the knowledge in the world in books, but if there isn't that human handing that book to the next human, it's all for naught. And it's those relationships that kind of tie that knowledge from one generation to the other. I mean, mm-hmm. books are a tool, but unless there's these, these little guys out there, I'm waving my thumbs to the camera right now. These, these little hands that hand hand are hand these tools to the next generation and tell them the importance of it. That book isn't, you know, a self fulfilling um, tool at all. Mm-hmm. So I think relationship is is key. And a lot of people have been talking about this generational divide since I started in the industry or started being involved, at least with ISCE over 18 years ago. You know, even back then they were talking about what are we going to do when all of us gray heads are retiring and there's no one in the middle to kind of carry that baton between these generations that that were my age at the time you know still in school and then for the past 18 years i've kind of heard heard that the sky is falling and here we are there's not a month that goes by that i don't hear about another retirement um and i don't know if we have done enough to stem that divide um we've we talked about how it was a problem for 18 years, but I don't know if enough of those relationships between the old generation and the new generation were made. Now, I'm fortunate to be in a, an incredible position where I have access to all of this, this living body of knowledge. You know, all of the subject matter experts at all of these companies, I can give them a call if I've ever got a question that's that's often that I'm giving these calls and asking the questions and just being at the fount of knowledge is incredible. Now I realize not everyone in the industry has has that sort of access. So so I am concerned about some of this knowledge going away um, in the future, and that gives me incredible pause in an industry where the practices we have in place, the rules by which we operate are often because something went very wrong in the past. Someone got incredibly hurt or died. Mm -hmm. I don't want to relearn those lessons the hard way. Yeah. And I think that that's very well said there. That's, you know, we're, we're a little bit different than some other industries, like you pointed out. And the fact that many of the things we deal with are, there's a lot of safety and security concerns that come up with them. And it's something that we always say that, you know, a lot of these regulations are written after an event happens and they're there for specific reasons. And that's where, you know, the, the, I think the question becomes, how do you ensure that those things stay around and, and stay up to date and we don't have to relive any of those? And um, that's where I know, at least on my end, I found a tremendous guide in all of the SLPs and all of the different things IME does to help put that information out there into the marketplace that, you know, especially coming from a group uh, like yours, uh, a private company may not be able to 
put together all of the vast amount of information there and condense it into a very easily uh, usable format. And I know you guys have now launched your online education platform as well for these SLPs. And um, what's what's sort of the background there? And, and, you know, is that to reach out so more people can take this uh, information and use it to learn with it? Absolutely. So that kind of stemmed as a, let's develop a better tool to take what's printed our paper on the screen and make it a little more um, easy to digest for the student. So, so someone doesn't have to sit there and read through an entire SLP to absorb that knowledge. They can now go through more of an online classroom-like setting to be taught that information. And some people, you know, everyone learns differently. Some people, it's better for them to go out there and read that SLP. That's not everyone. Some people need to have that kind of more classroom-like setting in order to learn. So we're just increasing our portfolio on how we transfer this knowledge. And what's great about the e-learning with the world we're living in right now today A lot of people are looking for those uh, virtual learning experiences for continuing education because they can't get into their workplace, et cetera. And that's where um, this offering is, uh, as fortunate as it is, timely and only in its offering. Mm -hmm. And we are going um, right now with that as we develop more and more and more we have two out there right now we plan to have another two by the end of the year and um, eventually we'll have probably around 15 16 uh, of our SLPs in this format Um, not all of them can be turned into this format. For example, our glossary of terms, we're not going to be able to turn a dictionary or a glossary into a, an online course that just wouldn't be very interactive or fun for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to have a, a nice little library out there and we're going to the state regulators and asking that they accept them for a continuing education for blasters licenses right now. That's great. It's great. Yeah, definitely getting that uh, information into people's hands. And um, you and I have talked a lot about in the past on the online education. And uh, that's something, too, that that we're working on and developing courses more on the um, blast design and some other areas of explosives engineering. And uh, I think they fit in well uh, with a lot of these different events going on now. And, and they're definitely timely and uh, beneficial. And, and I think it gives the blaster in the field the ability to learn more information, which may have been unaccessible to them just due to the base needs of, you know, their job. They're they're going to the bench, they're on the bench, they're loading, they're drilling every single day, and they have projects lined up for weeks on end. They can't necessarily afford to take time off and travel and go to a physical location for a, a day course or something, which ends up almost knocking out an entire week of work for them. So I think that this online education, at least from my perspective, is something that is going to be able to better bring this information into the field, into the hands of the end users uh, and, and ensure that they can sort of continue learning with the industry and with everybody else where otherwise they may not have as much time to do it. And, and that's something, you know, sort of uh, switching topics a little bit here, but that's something, uh, you know, recently we've seen the introduction of electronic detonators and there was a, a big push 
on these electronics. And as the industries evolved, uh, we've seen some changes to at least original guidance or maybe some confusion there. And one of the big areas I know that uh, we've talked about in the past is with lightning and um, electronic detonators. And, and it seems like some people have this idea that you can use electronic detonators in uh, lightning events. And um, I wanted to get sort of your thoughts and I am on that. Sure. And yeah, I kind of have heard some of this uh, misunderstanding out there as well. And I'll get right to it. I mean, our guidance, our recommendations are no different if you're using electric or an electronic initiation system when it comes to lightning. That's because lightning is no joke and explosives don't care what initiator you're using if lightning is involved. That's pretty much the short of it. As far as some of this this misinformation or confusion that's kind of been out there is, um, I think, around the increased safety of an electronic. I mean, it, it takes a very um, complex system to set it off. A regular old shot box isn't going to set it off. You know, I remember hearing back in... <clears throat> back when these were originally coming out and being promoted by industry, uh, the tech reps saying, hey, you can stick this in an electric socket and it's not going to set it off. Now, I've never gone out there, nor do I advise anyone going out there and seeing if they're um, exposing the truth or not. But when comments like that are being thrown around by salesmen, it's uh, easy to become a little more too, or a little too comfortable with the safety of the system. So you always have to have that healthy understanding of exactly what you're dealing with. And lightning is no joke. Yeah, and that's what that's sort of the guidance I always give is that, you know, none of these systems are entirely safe from lightning events. And there's nothing that says it's just the detonator that has to go off from a lightning event. I mean, we have uh, boosters, we have the uh, anfos or emulsions, some places using dynamite. And we've, we've seen... Uh, you know, lightning set off even holes underground. So this isn't something that uh, we always say, it's something you want to test out in the real world. You know, the best advice is just when there's lightning to stop. And um, I think that's one of the, that's at least on my end, that's probably the biggest misconception I've seen from uh, some of these systems. And and again, I, I don't think there's any specific company that's advising this. If you look at their manuals, they all say right up front, don't, don't use these detonators and lightning. So I think it's sort of uh, a ease of comfort because of that increased safety of the systems. And I don't think there's any doubt that they are safer systems, uh, but sometimes people get complacent or they don't understand all the safety procedures. And I, I think that's at least one of the things I've been trying to look at is how we spread that information out there. And um, I know recently IME was working with some of the different groups uh, regulatory body, bodies on electronic detonators. I know uh, MSHO was one of those groups that recently revised a lot of their federal guidance uh, relying on IME and your guys' technical expertise. Um, what were? Can you tell us some of the background on that and what were some of those changes that MSHO made there? Yeah, so a lot of MSHO's regular, regulatory language was so out of date that if you read it, it just at best did not apply to the use of electronics detonators. At worst, 
um, circumvented some of the safety aspects of utilizing electronic detonators. When you had inspectors coming out there insisting or siding because you don't shunt an electronic, it, it just makes everyone who knows what an electronic is kind of scratch their heads in confusion. So we worked through the rulemaking process um, with OSM, or, or not, excuse me, not OSM, MSHA, to update their regulatory language to recognize electronic detonators as a viable technology in a manner that makes sense with the technology. So that that was a really big win for us, and we are all happy to see that happen at the speed with which it did. It took them around 18 months for that change to happen, and that sounds like a long time to anyone in industry, but if you're dealing with the federal government, that's that's really warp speed. Yeah, and I, I, I know, too, uh, there was some information put in there on misfires as well. Uh, I, I reviewed those sections and, and how electronic detonators were updated and added to and the misfire guidance. And uh, I've been fortunate as a member of IME that I've got to see some of the background as, as you guys have been working to put forward that guidance. Um, and, and could you explain sort of what that procedure took and, and how you guys put forward the guidance on uh, misfire wait periods for the electronics and what that, that wait time is? Sure. So the wait time, as we currently recommend it, is 30 minutes following a misfire or suspected misfire when electronic initiation systems are utilized. And this um, recommendation kind of comes from two points. One is, if you listen to a past podcast, you know that the pyrotechnic delay element was replaced by an electronic command system in electronics. So the actual physical mechanisms that give you a delay are different. As a result, applying the wait time for one physical system to another just doesn't really make sense. With this in mind, we went out to all of our manufacturers of electronic detonators and surveyed them, asked them their recommendation for their specific systems. Now we took that data, uh, stripped it of any proprietary information or uh, company attribution and looked at just the spread of numbers that manufacturers recommended. And based on that feedback and their technical reasoning behind that specific recommendation provides us with the knowledge we need to make to make ours, which is thirty minutes following a misfire using electronic systems. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, and and that's uh, I think that's an uh, important update. I know even with MSHA, there's some uh, differences in the coal versus metal non-metal regulations on misfire wait times and everything, and uh, with some of the older pyrotechnic systems, and um, you know, it's it's good to see that there's been some added input there on the electronics. Again, I know I've been out on several benches where. Uh, people have assumed that if an electronic misfires, they can go in right away, um, especially if it tested good beforehand. They, there's been some uh, idea that you can go in right away and rehook it up. And I was just at a project actually a couple months ago, um, back in August of, of 2020 here, and that, that was exactly what happened. The blaster had a misfire and ran in right away because they thought it was safe. And 
um, probably wasn't 30 seconds. And, you know, we had to do a little, do a little stand down and explain to them that that's not the proper procedure. And so again, you know, I think that's a big uh, push that maybe it's a behind the scenes move, but to have MSHA come out and actually say something and give some guidance on that, that now mines and, and drill and blast companies can turn to and say, this is the regulatory information. So we have to stick by this. And this is now our minimum. And, and if we want to be more conservative, I know some companies choose to be, um, and, and some of that too is just for document keeping, but you know that way they can put that forward. And I think this is, you know, we've seen just in the last couple of years, a lot of new innovations coming in the electronic detonator marketplace. Uh, what do you think is going to be coming here over the next, let's say, few years or few decades um, with electronic detonators? What, do, what are some major improvements or uh, innovations that people are looking into? Yeah, so the idea of electronics has been around for quite a while. You know, patents first came out in the 80s, and then viable technologies started showing up decades later. And with a lot of new technologies, especially on the initiation side, there has to be a problem or a perceived problem before that new technology is readily adopted. And we've seen that throughout history from what they used to initiate black powder all the way once up to when they had a a detonable explosive, they needed a new tool and electrics came around when they finally invented something that could set off electrics in the field. So there's always pressures that either force the adoption of a new technology or cause an old technology to kind of go away. Um, You know, shock tube really took off not so much because of its superiority to electrics in and of itself, but because there was radio frequency hazards that were now pushing electrics out of the way. So to know what that external force that's really going to drive either the evolution or adaptation of electronics, if I really knew that, I'd know exactly where to invest my money and retire in a decade. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I think one of the big drivers on people taking a hard look at electronics or some of the regulatory aspects of the environmental effects of blasting. So if you have to control your vibration and all of a sudden you're shooting next to a community that didn't exist there a decade ago, you've got neighbors encroaching on your quarry, you're going to have to do some novel things to keep that vibration down and electronics might be your only viable tool. So I think pressures, regulatory pressures, pressures such as that are really going to be what drive electronic. So that's kind of on the environmental side. They're also a vastly superior system when it comes to security. And if you look at other countries around the world, China, for example, who knows if if they'll come through with this, but they want to be 100% electronic by 2024. And that would take a huge change and a huge push. But communists are good for that; those monolithic, state-driven kind of, we don't care, the, the party says so kind of initiatives. So mm-hmm. they don't really have market forces because the, the government controls the market over there. So we'll see if that, that edict comes to fruition. But what they cite the reason for that is security because they don't want detonators, kind of the critical component in, in, 
and bad devices to end up in the wrong hands. Um, so we'll see, barring any sort of, um, you know, security pushes over here, I think we're just going to see this uh, gradual change in, in uh, blasters becoming more comfortable mm-hmm. with with electronics. And let's see if I can say this. I talked about the age gap at the beginning of, the, of this discussion. You know, as, as a younger generation, more tech savvy comes into the workplace, maybe they'll more readily accept some of these newer technologies as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know I've heard uh, I've heard some people talking about the the Chinese push into the electronics and that hundred uh, percent electronic detonator system there. And there's been some, depending on where you look in the, look in the world, I think there's been some uh, people are looking forward to that because they think it'll drop the price of electronics and. I know uh, just recently I was talking to a group in Africa and and they were sort of getting ready for that because they believe that that would end up in turn dropping those prices significantly in the African marketplace and allowing them to then start purchasing and using these electronic systems more and more. And, you know, I think that's one of the interesting things that's that, you know, I, I, I know most of the world's looking at, and I don't know if IME I'm sure is going to be keeping an eye on it, uh, you know, as these systems evolve, there's differences, there, there's very intricate differences between some of these systems. For example, some are dual capacitor, some are single capacitor. They, they all require a different system that's uh, almost proprietary of the company making that electronic to initiate. And I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how the Chinese push that forward. Um, I've heard some rumors that a lot of that, a lot of those electronics may end up becoming government-owned uh, systems that they're then going to push out into other marketplaces as well. I've heard rumors that say the exact opposite of that, but um, I'm sure you guys are going to keep a track of it too and see what they end up fully bringing to market in order to get that to occur and and how similar or different those systems are from what we're using today from some of the major manufacturers in the world. Right, and the primary reason we'll keep our eye on that is a lot of our recommendations are North American centric. So they're either manufactured here or imported for use here in this market. Um, And that's why we can make, you know, general recommendations with the caveat are of assuming you're using the systems that um, were intended with the North American market in mind. Now, if you're importing something from another country designed for another country, just be aware that there are safety standards or precautions or what have you might vary from the North Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that's sort of, I think that that also goes into uh, an interesting topic that uh, I, I've been talking about a little bit. And last, uh, I think it was last year, I was sitting at uh, an FE conference over in Finland and sort of started hearing more and more. And there were uh, couple papers on these wireless detonator systems and I sort of looked at them in one regard they're sort of an advancement on electronics but at the same time they're a completely different system Uh, so you know has have you guys been looking into these wireless detonator systems at all 
So we've been following following that technology again because we want to make sure any regulatory rules out there don't get in the way of any advancement in the state of the art of the industry. So like I said, it took years to get MSHA even to ele- acknowledge electronics. And that was a barrier for, for some and for a long time. We don't want barriers like that to exist to impede the progress of um, our industry. And well, I've heard about wireless and I don't care what kind of fundamental technology is being used, be it very low frequency magnetic induction or any other wireless communication technology. Um, The fact is these are going to look and feel quite a bit different than anything we've used in the past. And we want to make sure, make sure the regulators know how they operate and have the tools and their toolbox being the regulation to um, not disallow their use in the U.S. Yeah, and you know, I I've been watching these, uh, and I think there's a couple major advantages. You know, right now it seems like the marketing's more going towards uh, the underground environment where you have, let's say, a pillar you want to extract, but you don't necessarily want to blast crew in there or something where there's a hazard to bring people in to load uh, or and maybe even drill that shot and you can sort of pre-drill pre-load put these wireless detonators in muck out the adjacent shot and then go in uh, and blast that you know weeks later and i i know there's you know i, th- I think the explosives that are going to be used from a base you know anfo or emulsion standpoint are also going to be interesting there because we see, we see some degradation of explosive with sleep time um but you know these systems that it brings a lot of things into question. And one of the things I think that these systems could potentially be used for is we're closing in on the control systems and the trucks and uh, different mechanisms to automatically load holes, let's say with an emulsion or an ANFO. The big problem with, for, I think, a lot of blasters would come into how are you going to use some automated system to actually tie these in together? Uh, but I think it could present a huge advantage in terms of your overall cost for for mining or drill and blast that area if you could go with some of these automated systems and have a machine that puts these wireless detonators in. And I think that's one of the major ways uh, we get towards that automation because I don't think the robotics will be there in time or at least in the near future to you know, be hooking up the electric and handling all the wires and making sure nothing's pulled or using the non-electric systems. But at the same time, while these wireless detonators could be great for production and uh, sort of that cost optimization of the blasting process, they do present some regulatory challenges there. And I know that's one of the major pushes that sort of came out with them. Uh, Where do you foresee the regulatory environment for these? How do we balance that commercial aspect and and the, you know, potential better cost and uh, easier loading processes and increased safety at a mine site? along the lines of, you know, safety of the public and and that governmental regulatory environment. So regarding autonomous loading in general? Uh, With these, just the wireless detonator systems. With the wireless detonator systems. I mean, yeah, the the wires always are going to be a hurdle. Um, Last I saw, Boston Dynamics didn't have a robot that can tie a bow yet. So I'm sure they're working on it. So hooking up the wires will always be a problem. Um. You know, you know, 
technically feasible, perhaps. Economically feasible. I'm a little more incredulous on that. The biggest hurdle I'm going to see is not so much from the regulatory aspects, but the, the legal aspect. Who holds the liability for a robot? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, a human with these, again, thumbs, has to fire that that shot. Mm-hmm. What blaster is going to feel comfortable with taking on the liability of a robot down there? Mm-hmm. So maybe this is illegal. Maybe this is a, a blaster comfort zone. Unless state laws change that... You know, it doesn't have to be a licensed license blaster firing that shot. Or they don't have the strict liability of how that shot went. Um, you know, that that's going to be the bigger hurdles, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and you know, I know these, uh, these systems currently, at least, are operating on like an ultra-low frequency uh, magnetic induction type system uh, to actually initiate the caps. And one of the... Uh, I don't know. I don't want to call it an issue, but developments in that has been that the caps cannot talk back with the system to confirm that they work. There's no two-way communication. I mean, I know also with some of these systems, the the way we're actually arming these wireless detonators, they're sort of unjammable signals, at least for right now. And some people have had security con- security concerns with these unjammable systems. So how do we? manage that or what's what's sort of the um um, i guess how are we looking at controlling that and ensuring the safety and security uh with these systems so to your first point regarding the two-way communication and that they're correct as they're currently engineered and designed they can't two-way communicate in a manner that we normally consider two-way communication to be so there are other safeguards when they're programming them, programming them, when they're testing them prior to loading. There are additional steps that you can double-check the system pretty much prior to, to loading. So there are other safeguards in place. Um, but, yeah, that live communication prior to firing the blast just uh, isn't there um, currently. That might be a problem. As far as the unjammability of these um, truly wireless detonators. I mean, that's why, that's why our our submarines with out there patrolling utilize this technology um, for communicating back home. As far as the security around that, I mean, right now, I have no concerns right now about it just because... This isn't a product you can go and buy off the shelf, right? No company is just selling them to an end user. So they're not going to end up in the wild very easily. Um, as, as far as how that will be handled in the future, um, really we can look to that or past. You're not seeing electronics being used right now in a malicious intent just because there are easier ways to design a bad device. 
mean, electrics are the go-to just because it's simple. It's what they are comfortable with. It's what they've been trained on. Why go through all the additional work to procure a guarded system that might not even work if you don't get all of the system when mm -hmm. you can just um, use an electric or cook up a homemade in, in the kitchen. So as far as the security aspect, I'm not too concerned because the bad guys are always going to take the past of least, least resistance mm -hmm. of which this technology is, is definitely not going to be in the foreseeable future. Yeah, and that's exactly how I've been looking at it too. I know um, just to get these systems to work, we, you have to install pretty large antennas. And I've seen some of the work on a single single versus four or five different ones. But regardless of how you go, it's it's very large antenna systems. Uh, there's a lot of you know of that investment up front to get those installed and everything. And um, at the end of the day, my my biggest argument on this has always been we see a lot of very, very simple, unsophisticated systems being used for this. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but we don't see really advanced systems put together from like a, a terrorist group or something like that. And while there's always regulatory concerns and, and there's a need to understand how these things work and, you know, protection of the public uh, from them, I, I've I've always, my answer's always been on these, that there's easier ways people are going to go to first before they're going to go to some advanced um, system like this. And it's not something that's easy to, you know, develop by yourself. I mean, there's, there's, you know, experts and, and big technical teams that are working on these systems to develop them. It's, and while they have some things that sound like scary buzzwords to them, you know, unjammable signals, they're really not as bad when you consider the whole picture of the system there. Um, and I think some of the, you know, there's there's some fear around this because we've seen some events and um, some of them intentional, some of them non-intentional. And I know uh, we had the chance to talk a little bit about Beirut and the recent explosion we just saw there earlier this year. Um, and that was, you know, an extremely tragic event that um, the the I think anyone would describe it as a catastrophe. Uh, but what most people or at least what it seems to be up front is really this was a failure to properly store ammonium nitrate. And I think that's what a lot of people are looking at it as. Um, what's your take on this? And can you give us some background on, on what happened there and what, uh, you know, what transpired that caused that to occur? occur? Yeah, I think promoting it from a disaster to a catastrophe is exactly that or exactly right because you know, a disaster, a volcano is a disaster but a volcano isn't preventable. What makes this an absolute catastrophe is it didn't have to happen, right? All these things that went into how this ammonium nitrate was stored and handled was absolutely how not to do it. And it didn't have to be or shouldn't have been stored the way it was. So it was absolutely preventable. And, you know, I've seen reports where the people closest to it knew exactly that, but there was problems with the bureaucracy and the government in, in rectifying the issue. So it was, it was an event that scared me. Um, 
just because here we are how many years after um, Texas City event knowing how AN can handle or can react when bad things happen to it and we're still having to learn these lessons. Didn't I talk about that early on? I don't want to repeat or learn the same lessons over and over. Mm-hmm. You know, I looking at the this event and um, seeing all the initial reports and some of the follow-on reports, I don't see a lesson here. It's things we already knew. There's nothing yeah, the explosives industry could learn about this. So, uh, you know, seeing that on television, or I guess it was on the internet when, when that was first coming out, seeing that orange cloud, that crimson cloud, I was just had a sinking feeling thinking that's AN. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, you know, you touched on it perfectly that we've known this has happened, that, that this can happen. We've, we've known that this is potentially a problem. Uh, you know, I, I often tell the story in a lot of my seminars and when I speak about Bob Acri, uh, when he invented Anfo and the way he knew that Anfo was probably going to work out. And the reason he even started experimenting it with it was because of events like Texas City. So this is not only something that we know about very well in in these problems with ammonium nitrate, uh, but IME actually puts out some best practices on how to handle ammonium nitrate and how to store it properly and safeguards around that. Um, do, you know, do you think those best practices, had they been followed, could have could have helped here? Yeah, if they had followed SLP thirty or recommendations on the safe storage of ammonium nitrate, I'm 99.9% sure that add a few more nines on that. I'm 98.999% sure that this would not have happened. And, you know, after this event, we got a lot of phone calls by people were concerned. Could this happen at a port here? Could this happen at a facility here? We kind of have to explain this is how they did it, how they stored is not how we do it over here. It's not how we're allowed to do it. It's not how we would do it, even if we were allowed to do it. Or it's not how we would choose to do it, even if we were allowed to do it. It's it's inconceivable of about of something on that scale happening here in the U.S. in today's day and age. Yeah, and I know just right after uh, everything happened, when I started seeing reports, I jumped onto my LinkedIn, and it, it was sort of from at least the explosives industry uh, on there. I I saw a lot of sort of outpouring of this information that you know we knew that this was something that was preventable, and uh, it was them not following proper guidance in any regard there, and, and not getting the proper systems in place to protect people and and uh citizens and you know i think that's probably the most tragic part of all of this is it's not something that we didn't know that could happen um it, it not only did we know it but we had to learn those lessons through the the tragic disasters that have happened in the past and uh you know i know ime you guys work a lot with various different groups but on a lot of the testing of this of this stuff um not only ammonium nitrate but all other different types of compounds and explosives and 
Uh, I, I remember seeing recently uh, you guys blew up a train, if if I remember correctly. Is uh, is that something you could tell us a little bit about? Well, to be fair, it wasn't a whole train. It was just one rail car off of a train. And, you know, I kind of alluded to some of the testing we've done in the past, and this was part of um, some testing to better inform uh, our software, IME Safer. We partnered with uh, DHS, and they took a rail car, which was donated by one of our manufacturers uh, out into the desert and loaded it up with um, an energetic of interest and forced it to go and it was cool to see and not as cool to spend two weeks picking up uh pretty much half of that that rail car that had been square spread over about 900 acres but um it's a little testing like that the that's um makes this job really really cool and testing we wouldn't even be party to or be able to conduct if it weren't for partnerships with the federal government. So when they're out there doing tests like this, having access even to the test as it goes, and then being able to collect data in the aftermath is is something not many uh, entities are able to swing. So that's it's really cool. So it wasn't a whole rail car, just tiny, tiny barge. It wasn't a whole train, just a tiny bit of it. And that was enough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I, uh, I remember seeing some of the releases on that, and I thought that was uh, an, a neat little project you guys had there, and and a lot of lot of that. It's my understanding that it goes into putting forward and and sort of making new updates to IME Safer, um, which you know I, I I have some base understanding on, but could you give us some background on what IME Safer is and and why you guys are developing this and and refining it over and over? Sure. So. SLP2 kind of talked about that one, the, the rule book by which we still play deciding how much and where we can store explosives was developed over a hundred years ago. And it was an incredible feat at the time going out there and doing this case study of about between 80 and 90 explosives, industrial explosives incidents that took place to kind of come up with a table to kind of decide how safe you are away from how much explosives. Now, like I said, it was developed 100 years ago, ago, and over time, the products we're storing have changed. How we're making them have changed. How we're transporting them have changed. The quantities, the housing in which explosives are stored have changed over all of this time. So perhaps the rule book should too. So IME kind of took it upon itself since it developed SLP2 in the beginning. Why not develop the next best thing? And that's where we kind of turned our sights from quantity distance-based sighting to quantitative risk assessment-based sighting. Now, QRA can take so much more into account, not just the type of material you're, you're storing, but the type of magazine it's in the type of house that's next door, how many houses are next door, how many windows are in those houses, how many occupants are in in all of those houses, how often are those occupants there at the same time that explosives are stored? What's the range of explosives you expect to 
expect a store. All of these and a lot more variables can go into uh, calculating a quantitative risk to an individual next door or to all of the individuals next door. So this wasn't ever envisioned to supplement or replace the American Table of Distances. It was meant to um, supplement it. And right now it's recognized by the ATF. If you find that you can't comply with the American Table of Distances, you can request an IME SAPER based variance to get out of that, to get a variance from what ATD requires of you. And they've granted around 30 variances. Um, and that might not sound like a huge number, but when each variance, say, allows you to double what you can store on site, imagine that what that would do for any of the listeners, particular sites, if you could all, all of a sudden, and I'm not saying this automatically doubles every site everywhere, but if you could store twice as much in your bins as what you're currently allowed, how much easier would that make your life? How much more efficient could you run your business? How much safer could it be because you're not sending as many trucks in or out to reload your, your bins? So these are some of the reasons that we've kind of gone down the, down the route of investing in quantitative risk assessment. And we've doing it for about 15 years. We've invested over $3 million in this product. And it's taken a long time to develop the software, to do the required testing, like the, the rail car, to feed good data into, into the algorithms. So we do test like blow up a rail car or an overhead bin or an ISO container to find out the consequence if a bad thing does happen. Now, to come up with the probability of something bad happening, which is also a critical uh, requirement for, in quantitative risk assessment, we go and look out at history and look at all the events that have happened, what's what's the frequency of those events? So you have to know how many have happened and the, the opportunity. So how many magazines have been out there for how many years and how many of them actually go up? And once you have that data, which we can go and collect through pouring over history, going to our members, asking them, going to ATF, asking them from their investigations, we can come up with some very good data to feed into the quantitative risk assessment formulas that IME Safer utilizes. Gotcha. Yeah. So basically, this is sort of like another tool in a blaster's tool belt that they can use or, or a site's tool belt to help them with their storage, um, make changes to some of those ATF uh, table of distances and give them the ability to really take a, a better look at how they're storing their explosives and what the risk of that may be on, let's say, the, say the public or, or some of their buildings and everything as well. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's a great piece of software to have, and, and I'm glad you guys are developing it. 
what what do you think's next for IME Safer? Where are you guys trying to take it to, uh, sort of for the next iteration as you keep working on it? Yeah, so there's some you know very long term goals that we eventually would like to to have with the software, like 3D terrain, things like that. But that's well down the road. Um, in the immediate future, we'd like to do additional testing on um, donor structures that we don't have much data on right now. For example, the next test we want to do is uh, an overhead bin full of ANFO, something like 120,000 pounds of ANFO out there. And we want to, you know, do some science on that for, for research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally for research. Yeah. <laughs> another one of those neat tests you guys get to do out there and then spend a couple weeks picking up debris. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. And looking forward to that one. Uh, our big federal partner with that one will be uh, ATF since they have jurisdiction over the storage of ANFO. They're interested in it as well. So they will be a very important federal re- partner to have to see that test come through. Um, another test we're looking at to better inform IME safer is looking at the jet perforating guns used in oil field services. So if you're not aware, these are kind of like conical shaped charges that they use to begin the fracking process down hole. We'd like to study the debris pattern those generate if they unintentionally detonate on the surface and not down down hole at pressure and temperature. Um, so that's where this tool has more value, not just for the conventional drill and blast side, but also in other industries where explosives are utilized, like oil and gas surfaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Great stuff. Yeah. And, and uh, that's that's sort of everything I had on my list. I know we've talked about a lot and uh, a lot of different areas, but glad you got glad to have you uh, and and IME all out there working for us and making sure that the explosives industry can stay safe and secure and um, interfacing with those politicians to get the regulations in place to make sure that we can keep doing uh, our job every day. It's it's nice to have sort of like that guardian angel watching over us and making sure we have uh, we have some some backup there and uh, especially from a technical perspective like you bring to the table there. So. I do want to thank you again. Thank you again for being on the podcast today. And where can, uh, you know, if someone, if if someone's listening to this and they want to reach out to you or to IME, where can they go to get some more information and uh, learn some more about you guys? Yeah, it's pretty simple. Just go directly to IME's website. That's www.ime.org. All of my contact information can be found on the website and all of our SLPs, all of our multiple, our multitude of other educational um, products are out on our website um, so go out there check it out great yeah and thank you again and i'll link to uh that and some of the other slps and everything directly in the show notes for this episode uh so thank you josh again for coming on and it's been a pleasure to have you hey thanks tony glad to be here and that's a wrap for this episode of academyblasting.tv Thank you guys for listening today, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Josh Hoffman of the Institute of Makers of Explosives as we discussed everything in the world of explosives from accidental explosions, the recent events in Beirut, 
all the way to the future of initiation systems. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever your podcasting platform of choice is. And if you don't have one, head to academyblasting.tv, put your email into our database there, and you will be notified of every new episode launch. Make sure you stay up to date on what's going on in the explosives industry and continue to tune in to academyblasting.tv. This is Dr. Anthony Konya signing off. Academyblasting.tv